0: Welcome to Going Further and Higher, Shakespeare Martineau's podcast in which we discuss topical or indeed long-running themes in higher and further education. My name is Smita Jamdar and I'm partner and head of education at Shakespeare Martineau and I'm joined today by my colleague Geraldine Swanton, who's a legal director with me in our education team. In today's episode we're discussing a judgment handed down in Bristol County Court in the middle of May uh, in a really sad case involving the tragic death of a student Natasha Abrahart. The case must have been an incredibly painful one for Natasha's family and friends and for the university involved. And I really don't want to dwell on the details too much, but the the case did give us some judicial interpretation of some areas of law that affect universities more widely. So it's worth reflecting on what we could learn from it. It is of course a first instance decision and therefore it doesn't set any precedent and the university involved has said that it may in any event appeal, but it analyzed the legal position in two important areas the duty of care owed by universities to their students, and secondly, the disability discrimination provisions of the Equality Act. So if we start then with the duty of care, this was put forward in the claim as the duty to take reasonable care for the well-being, health and safety of its students. In particular, the defendant was under a duty of care to take reasonable steps to avoid and not to cause injury, including psychiatric injury and harm. So I think the controversial bit in that was really the second part the duty to avoid
1: psychiatric injury or harm. Jerry what did the court say about that? The court was quite unequivocal and it said that there was no statute or, or precedent that established the existence of such a duty of care. Uh, and the claim that was sought to be made was that um, because the university was providing ancillary services, support and welfare services, that that created a duty or an assumption of responsibility for a person's welfare and to avoid um, any kind of psychiatric Um, Injury. Effectively, it was saying or trying to say that the university owed a duty to a student to protect them from themselves and to find such a duty would be novel, which is an understatement, and it would be inconsistent with existing law particularly the law in relation to suicide, which says that a person of sound mind is responsible for their own actions. And there are very rare exceptions to that general principle. And one of the exceptions would be where um, an organisation had custody or control over the individual, typically in prison or in a a secure psychiatric hospital. And there, there might be a duty to take operational steps to protect a person from self harm. But a student attending university is certainly not in a situation of custody and control exerted by the university. I think that's, um,
0: I suppose for lawyers, that's something that we kind of have, have grown up with. We, we, we understand and we, we take it in a way as read that that would be correct. Um, I think sometimes it's hard, isn't it, for people who aren't that familiar with the law to separate out what they might perceive to be a very strong moral or ethical duty to do something and asking themselves, why doesn't the law impose the same duty effectively that we think would be the morally right one? And I think it often goes back, doesn't it, to the fact that really there's not much you can do that would necessarily protect from the harm that was being described. And therefore, it's not right to be imposed with the legal responsibility for preventing um, that harm.
1: Needless to say, human behaviour is unpredictable, and uh, at best, and uh, there's always a tension between autonomy, and um, you know, deference to autonomy, and uh, well, knowing when to intervene. I mean, you're assuming a degree of knowledge that most universities would not have. So you have to, perhaps, if you know there's a real and imminent threat of serious harm then you would do all you reasonably could within your powers to prevent that harm and at the very most that would be call an ambulance call a doctor call the police. Yeah
0: exactly exactly because you you can't necessarily do anything that's going to stop the the, the event um, happening. I suppose the other thing that uh, perhaps creates a bit of cognitive dissonance in the minds of of um, people trying to make sense of the legal position is that notwithstanding whatever the legal position might be universities are trying to take steps to do things to reduce the risk of harm uh, to students Uh, uh, and and again we don't know where this would end up but potentially in the future the courts might look at those steps that institutions had had decided to adopt and say well maybe we are starting to stray into something
1: Mm. that looks
0: a bit more like it's fairer to impose a duty because you have said you will do certain things and if you do not do those things then potentially liability accrues but we're some way off that really at the moment we are
1: and, and it's about compassion for individual having compassion in individual cases but you need to be very circumspect about elevating individual acts of compassion into an institutional policy because your policy should undertake to do no more than you could reasonably be expected to do uh, and to do what's fair just and reasonable and uh That's not a lot really. Yeah indeed. indeed. counselling and access to services but that's different from assuming a responsibility from preventing harm.
0: Yeah and it does raise all sorts of questions about the adequacy of services, the adequacy of um, uh, things like you know the waiting times to to see university counsellors and so on. So there are a lot of unknowns in this area from a uh, uh, what would it take for the court to move into recognising this sort of duty of care? But as I say, the sector itself, I think, is it f- for all sorts of reasons, is, is rightly trying to do what it can um, to stop this sort of harm occurring. Um, if we then move on to the Equality Act, what struck me about this case was that a lot of the issues that the court was grappling with are ones that you and I have seen quite often when we're advising um, universities. So for example, in relation to the duty to make reasonable adjustments, uh, I thought the court gave some quite helpful analysis about the, the process for establishing whether a person, A, has a disability. In particular, is there a need for medical diagnosis? And secondly, then how you they should go about securing the adjustments they need. And um, what did you think about th- those those parts of the judgment?
1: I thought it was extremely apt and uh, sort of coincided with my understanding of how the law applies. And I often hear staff who genuinely toil with the whole notion of, of uh, reasonable adjustments because it is I mean, the disability discrimination legislation has been around for a long time, but there is an inherent tension in a university environment and making several adjustments, making many types of adjustments. But staff will often say, look, I'm not a medical profession; I can't diagnose a disability or we need a formal assessment uh, from student support before we can even consider whether we would make an adjustment. Um, But as the court said, And as we often advise, look, if a student's conduct is consistent with some kind of physical or mental impairment, which causes them a disadvantage when compared with other students, then um, the university will be imputed with knowledge of the disability. Um, And there's no need, uh, sorry, uh, when they are imputed with knowledge of the disability, because the conduct was self-evidently a disability, um, then, you know, the duty to make adjustments is engaged and doing nothing because the student hasn't reported their disability or doing nothing because there's no formal support plan is unlikely to offer a defence in those cases. So it's really important for academic staff, in particular, who are often on the front line, that they understand that the when the duty to make adjustments is engaged, and to be sensitive to the, um, the difficulties their students are experiencing, because it might, with a bit of you know, attention, become clear to them that actually the student is disabled and they need to do something about it.
0: I always wonder how much of, of the way that the sector approaches this issue stems from kind of conflating reasonable adjustments with extenuating circumstances. So, of course, the history of the sector has been if you want to claim extenuation in an assessment, you need to produce medical evidence in order to um, uh, show that there was something, you know, objectively and demonstrably wrong on the day. Your your own account of how you felt wouldn't be sufficient. Um, And it, it sometimes feels as if exactly the same model of judgment making has been imported into the disability discrimination um, or, the, or the, the the sort of way that institutions have responded to the disability discrimination legislation without thinking that actually the very definition of disability makes it clear that we're not looking at a diagnosis-based judgment. We're looking at a um, behavior, conduct, um, a capacity to cope with, with the you know, day-to-day activities type uh, judgment. So, I think that's where perhaps sometimes, especially maybe perhaps on the academic front, because they will be most familiar with things like extenuating circumstances, there is that tendency to say, well, where is the evidence Mm -hmm. of disability?
1: And I think, you know, some academics subconsciously are worried about a fairness issue to say, yeah. well, it's unfair to other students if this student is given special provision. But actually, it's not special provision. All it is an, is an adjustment to the environment or to the policy to enable the disabled student to compete fairly with the non-disabled students. And, and also the Equality Act makes express Provision for the fact that it's not discrimination against non disabled students to treat a disabled student more favourably. And um, I, th- I always think, I always tell my clients look, the disabled student shouldn't have to adjust to the university. The university has to adjust to accommodate the disabled student.
0: I think that was another really important theme that came through the judgment, which was to remind us all if we needed reminding that the duty to make reasonable adjustments sits on the on the institution, not on the student to seek them. And I think there are there are sort of two points there that the the first is in this case, there were questions over the student's ability to engage with the process that would have allowed her to access reasonable adjustments. And the um, court, I think, rightly made the point that if you did have a policy that the only way a student could get reasonable adjustments was by applying for them, um, that would need adjusting in the case of students whose disability meant that they couldn't necessarily follow that process um, in in the right way. And I I think that was a uh, an important helpful clar- clarification the second thing I thought was as well as well the very often what we see is a tendency for a student to ask for a range of adjustments um if an institution isn't immediately able to sort of make them or doesn't think that they're practical or, or doesn't think that they're reasonable that to be frank the, the conversation seems to rest there rather than then perhaps the institution saying well we can't do these things because they're not reasonable however You know, we could think about looking at other ways of accommodating your disability, remembering it is, after all, the institution's duty. So that bit of, you know, ownership of the issue um, and, and not just relying on what the student wants.
1: Exactly. So the duty is to prevent, the institution must prevent the student from suffering substantial disadvantage. And if, as you say, if one adjustment sort isn't reasonable, you have to find a reasonably effective alternative adjustment.
0: Yeah. And it ultimately, in those rare cases where no reasonable adjustments were possible at all, then what the law says is that is not then discrimination, because there is no reasonable adjustment that you could be made. But unfortunately, even if that defence was available in some cases, and I'm certainly not talking about the case uh, that, that started this conversation, um, because institutions haven't gone through the process of trying to think about adjustments, it's quite difficult to rely on it. Mm-hmm. Uh, so I think that, that you know, is, is a very useful um, recognition. And I think you also made the point about sort of frontline staff and their ability to um, understand the, the legal framework that they're working under um, and having a sort of way of making decisions that isn't overly bureaucratic. Yes. and how do that you know that when you when you know how universities work that's actually quite a complicated thing to unpick isn't it how do you get to the point where you don't just have capricious decision making by individuals applying their own judgments and nothing else but equally not siphoning everything into a very formal process that takes time and, and can disadvantage it
1: can be intimidating as well
0: absolutely absolutely
1: <laughs>
0: um i think one of the uh things that sort of Struck me about the judgment as well. And again, this is, I think, consistent with our own experience, Jerry, isn't it? That the issues are often most difficult when you're dealing with adjustments to the core academic activities of the university. So, you know, access to buildings or accommodation, you know, there may be issues around expense and so on, but generally those things are you know, readily made available. But when it comes to, especially, assessment, Um, um, adjustments but even adjustments to how things are taught uh, uh, there there does seem to be something of a difficulty for universities and again it seems to me there seem to be that that two strands to that one is the point you've already alluded to which is the need the absolute need for there to be comparable assessment for all students so that no student uh, can feel that their assessment wasn't judged to the same standards as someone else's key point there I think is comparable rather than the same assessment so there is some scope there and then of course crucially the need to maintain academic and um, professional standards and whilst we're having this discussion over here about disability discrimination and reasonable adjustments and so on we've also got quite a strong narrative coming out of uh the 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 sort of department and the ofs about how academic standards must never be compromised and you know grade inflation and this belief that somehow some courses aren't really testing students enough Um, and that comes through in the new quality and standards conditions of registration so i think the court again had to apply its mind didn't it to whether something really was a competence standard so what did it what did it say about that side of things jerry
1: Well, it said if the university could demonstrate that um, this oral um, presentation was a competent standard, absolute defense to a failure to make reasonable adjustments, because the law does not require you to prejudice your own academic standards. The problem with the case was that I think the student would have passed that particular Element of the course, notwithstanding a failure in the interview, so there was a huge difficulty there in proving actually this was an indispensable part of the program without which you would couldn't reasonably be construed as a, a, a properly educated physicist. And, and I think that the difficulty for universities is that you've got to distinguish the core learning objectives the core content of a program from the method by which you assess someone has reached the competence standards so how do you judge whether they actually have acquired those standards so you've got to distinguish the two sometimes the core competencies and the method of assess methods of assessment will coincide so if you're you're training to be an osteopath um you will need to palpate you know, patients' backs. And in order to assess whether you've got you've acquired the competence standard, the method of adjustment and the competence standards themselves are inextricably linked. You have to get a student to palpate the back. Um, so you can't make an adjustment to that because to do so, to diminish the professional standards of palpation would uh would prejudice the professional standards of the course. But then you have many cases where uh, let's take medicine again you know, multiple choice questions. Um, Some universities seek to argue that um, these are competent standards, performing multiple choice questions and exams. And you have to say, no, no, no. It's a method of assessing whether somebody has acquired knowledge. It doesn't in itself encapsulate the core clinical skill of making judgments quickly. That's in a clinical setting so it is you know and and of course it'll be case specific whether something is a competent standard or merely um, a mode of assessment but having made that distinction modes of assessment must be adjusted and we are enslaved I think for convenience and efficiency perhaps the three-hour exam and if that puts a student at a substantial disadvantage as a result of their um, disability, I'm afraid it just has to go. Something else must be put in its place to test the state of knowledge or to test the competence standards. But there has to be another way of of measuring it.
0: And you're so right about um, how much of this is in a way instinctively this is how it's always been done, we've always used these methods of assessment and we must continue to do it without necessarily having gone through that process of thinking, is it a competence standard or is it a method of assessment that needs to change? And again, you can sort of see a clash coming here because um, there has been so much uh, misinformation, I think, about what inclusive assessment looks like in universities that it's fallen into that whole narrative around, as I said, you know, not not sufficient challenge and test and rigour. And the risk is that actually you're being pulled in one direction that says stick with the most rigorous forms, you know, the old-fashioned three-hour written exam, closed book, nothing else, away from thinking creatively, not actually not just for students with disabilities, but for anyone, what is the best way that you demonstrate that you've got the knowledge that means you're entitled to uh, the qualification that you've studied so hard for? So I think competence standards, it's very useful that they have been you know put into the limelight again and i think it's something which um, you know institutions do need to think about a bit more but i suspect we're a very long way off having a smooth passage into <laughs> this is this is what you know proper assessment could look like against the backdrop of the um the equality act so thank you very much there jerry for sharing your thoughts about this um this very very tragic uh, case and thank you to you all for listening We hope you'll join us next time. So don't forget to hit the subscribe button. And if you've liked what you've heard, please do leave a review. So until next time, it's goodbye from me.
1: It's goodbye from me.